Thank you, guys. All right, tonight's teaching comes from Ephesians chapter 4. We're looking at starting in verse 17, and we're going to actually work all the way into chapter 5, verse 2. And here's what the Apostle Paul says about the Christian life. He says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands so that they may have something to share with those who are in need. Also, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And he closes with this in chapter 5. He says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is God's word. Um, We've been looking at Ephesians for quite a while now, and we've said uh, repeatedly that it's divided into two main chunks, first half and second half. And really, it's worth reminding ourselves that Ephesians was intended by God to be what's called a circulatory letter. That means that it's it's meant to be, you know, it's written to one group, the church in Ephesus, but they're meant to circulate it. They're supposed to pass it around from congregation to congregation. It's a little different than from some of the other letters of Paul, like Corinthians, which is super specific to that congregation. It's not that they can't, that we can't learn stuff from it, but it's very detailed. It has specific names. It has specific problems in that church. That's not really Ephesians. Ephesians is about universal principles of the Christian life. Okay, And again, what we've said is that the first half of it, chapters 1 to 3, is God's plan of salvation, predestined by the Father, saved by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. The second half is about our Christian lifestyle. The second half is about our walk with Jesus. The second half is the Apostle Paul saying, look, the gospel gives you otherworldly resources to change, to transform. Um, now, sometimes we don't like the idea of that, making changes and transforming our lives. I've, I've only met a couple people in my life who said, I'm totally 100% good with who I am. I don't have any regrets. I don't have any flaws. I don't have any needs for improvement. I don't have any... Anybody who ever says that is either lying to themselves or they're delusional or they're just completely impenitent. Those are the only three options, okay? The vast majority of people 
the vast majority of us say like, yeah, I've got resolutions, I've got improvements to make, but my problem is I just can't get myself to do it. You know, like I struggle to make those changes. I struggle in transformation. What Paul is giving us right here is the power to transform. The gospel gives us unique resources to become more than what we once were by putting off the old and putting on the new. And that's what we're looking at tonight. We're going to break it into these three teachings. What you were by nature, that's uh, both your status and your behavior, verses 17 to 24. What you're aiming at for behavioral changes, that's verses 25 through 32. But that's different from what your current status uh, is. What your current status is, is already gifted to you in Christ Jesus, and that's verses 1 through 2, okay? So it's what you were, what you're aiming at behaviorally, and what you currently are from a status standpoint, okay? So first of all, what you were. And the first kind of interesting and provocative thing that the Apostle Paul says is right here in verse 17, where he says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now, the reason that's interesting is because Paul's, he's saying, don't live like the Gentiles. Guess what the Ephesians are ethnically? They're Gentiles. Gentile just means non-Jew. So he's not saying ethnically stop being Gentile. He's saying ethically, cultural lifestyle, stop being Gentile. Okay? So what does that mean exactly? At that time, in the first century Roman world, the Gentile culture had a couple of interesting facets about it. Number one, uh, they didn't believe in any afterlife. So what is here and now is all that there is, so seize the moment and squeeze as much pleasure and joy out of this life as you can, right? So here and right now is the only thing. Secondly, sexual expression was totally free. It was just an appetite, so you get to use your sex exactly how you want and how you choose to do it, Uh, so they're totally open with it. It's just satiate your appetite. Thirdly, they also said uh, they had common idolatry in their lives. Your life is whatever you make of it, so make it a good one. In other words, you can make your life to mean what you want it to be. That's totally different from a regenerate mindset. Regenerate mindset says, no, heaven is my home. I'm only here temporarily. A regenerate mindset says, sex is given by God according to God's design, and if I use it outside of his design and his parameters, it's destructive instead of constructive, what it's supposed to be. And according to the regenerate mind and what God says, uh, we're living for Jesus' glory, not our own glory. So I don't get to just choose what my life is about. It's given to me. I was created by God to worship God. So it's a totally different thing. So this is Paul saying, don't live like the Gentiles culturally. It's a little bit like if I would say to you tonight, okay, stop living like Americans. Um, now, that's not, I'm not saying anything like anti-patriotic about that. I'm saying culturally. Um, and I suppose we could debate this a little bit, but generally speaking, if God were to come to you tonight and would say one of two things, live more like Americans or maybe don't live so much like Americans, which one do you think that he would say? And in fact, interestingly, you don't even have to necessarily, I mean, you should, but you don't even have to take a holy God's word for it. You can just listen to the secular world because the secular world is currently telling us Christians don't live so much like the secular world. Um, One of my favorite researchers, I've referenced him before, a guy named David Kinnaman, a couple years ago wrote a book called Unchristian. And basically, he interviewed thousands of people, young adults who were outside of the church, and said, what is your perception? What is your takeaway from Christians who are in the church? And one of the top words that came up repeatedly was the word hypocritical. 
And so, well, Kinnaman said, that's, that's harsh. Is that fair? And so what he also did is he surveyed thousands and thousands of Christians. And here's what he found from a behavioral standpoint. He said, when asked to identify their activities over the last 30 days, believers, Christians, these are active Christians, by the way, too, were just as likely to bet or gamble, visit pornographic websites, take something that did not belong to them, consult a medium or psychic, physically fight or abuse someone, consume enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk, to use an illegal non-prescription drug, to have said something that was not true, to have gotten back at someone for something he or she did, and to have said mean things behind another person's back. In other words, the behavioral difference between an active Christian and a non-believer, the difference was negligible. There was no difference. In fact, he also found that of the young people that he polled, 85% of them knew, uh, personally knew and had a relationship with an active Christian. And of that group, only 15% said they perceived any difference in the lifestyle between those that knew themselves, that identified as Christians, and those who did not. Now, either they are just grossly misinformed or they are, like, convictingly accurate and convictingly perceptive. In other words, as Christians, if you go about choosing your job or choosing your school or choosing your major exactly the way that the rest of the world does, if you go about choosing who you date or you do on those dates the exact same things that the rest of the world does on those dates, or if you form your identity the exact same way the rest of the world forms its identity through success and failure and the approval of others, uh, if your confidence or your fears in life mirror the world's confidence and fears, which is on the basis of circumstances, like how much money do I have in the bank account, if you are just as afraid of dying as the rest of the world is, what would the Apostle Paul say to you? I'm sure he would say, I insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. He's, Paul says you've got to change your mindset, you've got to change your value system, and that comes when you take off that old self and put on the new self. Now, what exactly does that mean? Take off the old self, put on the new self. Okay, what does that mean? Um, you've got to make a decision. Now, I know, uh, Lutherans, generally speaking, don't like to make decisions. We don't like talking about decisions or making decisions or anything like that. But, like, guess what? If you've got the Spirit of God inside of you, you have to make godly decisions. You have to, right? Because he empowers you to do exactly that. And so every day, we desire and aim at making God-pleasing decisions. And therefore, what you have to do is you have to consciously determine to take off what in your life is not spiritually healthy. Well, what does that look like? For some of you, what that means is you're going to have to probably eliminate some people from your life. You might have some friends in your life. You might have some family members in your life right now who are spiritually unhealthy for you and not helping your relationship with Jesus and pulling you away from Jesus. Jesus warned about that. He said you might have to create some separation there. You might have to take that off and take that out of your life. Uh, for some of you, it means you can't own a smartphone. I'm sorry. But uh, it's just too easy to access too many internet sites that are simply not good for you, not healthy for you, destroying your relationship with God. And that means you've got to roll out in your 2004 Motorola flip phone and look like you're crazy. But that's what you've got to do. You're, because you're, you're, your flesh cannot handle that amount of freedom. So at least be honest about it and say, that's not for me. You know, It's maybe not wrong for everybody, but it's not for me. For some of you, it means like financially, you're going to have to cut up your credit cards because you cannot, your flesh cannot handle managing money. 
Uh, or for some of you, it might mean like not working in cash all the time. You gotta get a bank account because the moment you get any money, it immediately goes out because you don't have the power to manage it. Your flesh cannot control that. So what you have to do is consciously determine to take that off and take that out of your life. And you gotta put on something different. The new thing that you put on by God's grace is the spirit of God and a new self is one that Look, it can mean a variety of different things, but one thing I guarantee it means in all of our lives is an additional level of Christian accountability. It means people in your life who speak truth into your life in ways that the rest of the world might not in enabling you. Uh, Somebody who's regularly asking you, how's your devotional life going? How's your daily prayer life going? In your relationships, how is your purity and your generosity and your humility and your forgiveness, how is that going? Do you have somebody who's checking in with you regularly on that kind of stuff? God wants us to take off the old and put on the new. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. All of us should do that because we all have weak flesh. And I actually think the world is coming up to speed on this. And that's partially because... In a high-tech era, digitally, we're recording everything. So you want to know why there's been as many scandals, as much, as much cancel culture, and as much whatever as there has been in the past couple of years? Because everybody is walking around with a recording device, and within a couple of years, every square inch on the planet is going to be recorded around the clock. So what Christians do is we say, yeah, I know I'm sinful. Get out in front of the world accusing you of sin and say, yeah, I'm totally sinful. Confess your sins, confess your weaknesses, confess your struggles, beat the world to the punch and say, God, please forgive me and fellow Christians, please help me. That's putting on the new self, okay? Um, All right, that brings us to point two. So we're getting rid of the old self, the old behaviors, and the old status. And what we're aiming at now is new behaviors. The Apostle Paul gives us five in this text that I want to specifically highlight. Okay, he he states them in fairly negative terms, but I'm going to reframe them in, in positive terms. You'll see what I mean. Number one, he says, aim at honesty in your life. And specifically, he says, you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Stop speaking lies. Stop living lies. Stop living in deception. Stop pretending to be something that you're not. Why do humans lie in the first place? Because we're terrified that the truth is going to be incredibly uncomfortable and inconvenient. And we want to control the narrative because we want to control the outcomes because we don't totally trust that God is going to bring us the outcomes that we want. So, At its root, our lies are a matter of unbelief. And we're afraid that if we are truthful and totally honest with other people about our shortcomings and our weaknesses and our behaviors, what if they reject me? What if they don't like me? What if they don't want to hang out with me? Number one, I don't think that's the case. In fact, in a super marketed era, when you're particularly vulnerable and transparent, I think the world today finds that a little bit endearing because there's a unique authenticity attached to it. Number two, even if people do reject you, let God, let God deal with that. Trust that the God of truth, if you honor the truth like he asks you to, he's going to bless that truth in ways that maybe you can't even comprehend. Okay? So we aim for honesty. Second, we aim for being calm. Uh, this is in relation to the Apostle Paul saying, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on you while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Wow, that is a brilliant way of saying that. Why is anger a foothold for the devil? You know what a foothold is? It's a firm place to stand on so that Satan, it's like fertile ground. It's a launching pad by which Satan can bring about other wickedness in your life. And you know why anger is the perfect opportunity for that? 
Because when you're angry, it means you feel unjustly treated. And if you feel unjustly treated, that means that you feel entitled and enabled to behave any way you want to bring about quote-unquote justice, which is actually just vengeance. It means you feel totally justified in any of your behaviors moving forward. Okay? So anger brings about a sense of entitlement in us. We're justified in doing whatever we want. Um, now we're going to get to how to diffuse that anger in just a second when we talk about forgiveness. But the third aim is hard work. So we're aiming for honesty, we're aiming for calm, we're aiming for hard work. And Paul says here, Paul says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Now this is super interesting because the Apostle Paul is not actually talking about what we think of as thievery and robbery here. That's wrong. Of course that's wrong. But he's not talking about that. And he clarifies that because the next thing he says is that you may have something to share with those who are in need. In other words, what the Apostle Paul is talking about here actually is he's giving us the reasons and the purpose of work so that we can share with others. In other words, think about it like this. A thief does not stop being a thief if they just stop stealing, according to what Paul says here. They don't stop being a thief when they even start working. You don't stop being a thief until you give away generous proportions of your money to those who are in need. From God's perspective, if he's given you skills to work and earn an income, and you're not giving a chunk of that money away to those who are in need, from God's perspective, you're robbing from those people. So, I mean, this is a totally mind-shifting way to look at our work. Our work is designed by God to be, one, a service to humanity, and number two, a means to make an income by which we can financially be a blessing to those who are in need. It would not be, it would not, I don't think, be going overboard to say, Christians, in many respects, should make as much money as you can possibly make so that more of the world's wealth is in the hands of those who want to compassionately share it with others rather than in the hands of those who just selfishly want to hoard it. Throughout the Bible, God is constantly encouraging generosity to the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners, and towards the gospel. So work hard to support those in need and the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, here's another one. Paul also says, aim for positive talk in your life. And specifically what he says here is, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. I'm sure a lot of you have probably heard this before, but uh, developmental psychologists will generally say that every child particularly needs, like something depends on who you read, but somewhere around five to eight times as many affirming comments as constructive criticisms in their life. Um, and unless, if they don't get that, they're going to be crushed. They're like psychologically crushed. And I know some of you who are older parents think that sounds excessive and, you know, modern parenting is really soft and helicopter parenting and snowflakes and whatever else, you know. Uh, but number one, I'd say trust the research. Number two, I'd say anecdotally, just look at your own lives. When you've done something in your life, if you get, let's say, nine positive comments and one criticism, especially if it comes from an authority, and you go to bed that night, which one are you thinking about? 
You're always, in fact, think about it like this. What if you do something where you don't do it particularly well and you get nine criticisms and only one positive comment? You wonder if you have any value whatsoever. And therefore, from a, from a verbal standpoint, oh man, it's so interesting because your words cost nothing to you. But if they're negative, they might cost everything to somebody else. And so Christians are supposed to use their words in a godly type of way. What does that mean? How did God design words to be used? You know that God brought the universe into existence by speaking it? That's what words do. They create and they order. It was a verbal creation ex nihilo, and therefore God wants you to use your words to build up and to construct. If you're using your words to destruct others, that by definition is an ungodly usage of words. What Paul would say to us right here is, don't be such a Gentile. By that, don't engage with your words the way the rest of the world engages with words. You want to see how not to engage with your words? Any comment section online. Any comment section. It's 100 to 1, negative to positive. I think 20, 30, 40 years from now, we are going to think, what an insane generation of people that allowed everybody else to anonymously, without any accountability, voice their opinions to the rest of the world. That is absolute insanity. Don't participate in that negativity. God wants us to use our words to build up and to create and bless people because that's the way he uses his words for us. Okay? Lastly, so aim for honesty, aim for calm, aim for hard work, aim for positive talk, aim for forgiveness. What he specifically says here is get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ in God forgave you. Now, I guarantee, you know, in a fallen world, you know as a Christian, this life is not going to be perfectly happy all the time. But I also know that the fastest way to make yourself unhappy all of the time is to live in absolute bitterness. Resent other people for what they've done. Seek the downfall of others and wait expectantly for your enemies to get taught their lessons and get their comeuppance. And the only person it hurts in the process is you. The only person lacking forgiveness ever truly hurts, generally speaking, is you. See, because forgiveness is not just for them. Forgiveness is, a, in part, it's a psychological mechanism that God gives you to let go of stuff. It prevents you from going insane. It prevents you from imploding. So when you let go of stuff, you are unburdened by that. When you forgive, you yourself are unburdened as well as the potential for relational reconciliation. Um, Paul's logic in all of this, by the way, is as God has forgiven you. And the logic goes like this. If God through Jesus can forgive your billion dollar debt, you can turn and forgive $1,000 worth of damage that other, some other fool has caused you. And if you do, you're going to be happier and you're going to be healthier. Okay? So these are behaviors that Paul encourages us to aim for. What's interesting, though, is you notice how I divided in the second two parts behavior and status. Because in every other world religion, your behavior contributes to your status. Christianity is different. In Christianity, you are gifted your status by the blood of Jesus Christ and the grace of God. You are a redeemed child of God and all of your behaviors then just flow out of that. And that's why I included the last two verses of this text. I actually had to jump into chapter 5. But remember, in the Bible, there actually aren't any chapter divisions. 
So when the Apostle Paul was writing this, he didn't intend for verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5 to be divided up. And here's what he wants you to understand. It's because the Apostle Paul never encourages behavioral changes without reminding you what your status in Christ Jesus actually is. Here's what he says in verses 1 and 2. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us, and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, after just telling the Ephesians and telling us that you and I are totally forgiven for any and every sin ever, he addresses them and he addresses us as dearly loved children. In other words, after all this time, he said, don't live this way, but don't not do it because if you do it, God is going to fire you. Because he's not your boss, he's your heavenly father. God does not fire his kids. He also doesn't want his kids to destroy themselves, though. And he doesn't want his kids to run away from home. And so he gives us some rules because that's what loving homes have. Guidelines. Every loving home that I've ever known, every healthy home that I've ever known, actually has some discipline, some rules, some guidelines for behavior. And God's home is no different. Um... Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice as our brother. We know, we know it was accepted by God because it says here it was a fragrant offering that satisfied the Father. And that's the reason that we can call God Father. That's home. He's home. And any decent, loving home has things like bedtimes, has things like dinner time rules, has things like here's how we are going to treat one another and speak to one another as a loving household. Family house rules. God has those for us too. We call them commands. They're good, they're loving, they're wise, they're for our blessing. Every perfect family has that. So simply embrace that. What Paul says here is follow God's example. Follow God's example means love the way that Jesus loves us. I remember 20, 30 years ago, I think maybe along, around that time, was when um, the what would Jesus do bracelets started cropping up. You know, everybody had one of those. I have one that's similar. It's, it's an updated version. It says, he would love first. So a little bit new, trendy. Um, not saying it's better, just saying it's different. Um, but what would Jesus do? I remember some Christians, uh, adult Christians at the time saying, what would Jesus do? That's not important. What matters, what really matters is what did Jesus do? What has Jesus done? Well, yeah, that's important. That's, that's absolutely essential for our salvation. And yet, for you to dismiss this statement and this question of what would Jesus do, don't do that because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying right here. Emulate Jesus Christ. Mimic Christ's love. Follow God's example. It's a totally scriptural way to think, and here's how it works. Some of you, let me give you one example. Uh, when you, later on today, when you go home, let's say from church, some of you parents, let's say, you got your kids sitting in the back of the car and one of the kids is going to hit the other kid and you're going to be tempted to turn around and you know what you're going to be tempted to say? Didn't you hear pastor's sermon tonight about loving one another? Don't do that because number one, no, they didn't because kids don't listen to sermons. I've never met a child that actually listened to sermons. So don't assume that they're picking that up. It's your job to disciple them at home. Number two, If you're in hearing distance of that, it means that you're supposed to take that information and apply it to how you're supposed to parent your child. So what you should be asking yourself at that moment is, how do I respond to my child in the same way that my loving Heavenly Father has responded to me? 
because my old self wants to yell, my old self wants to blow up, my old self wants to moralize and weaponize religion, and you can, you can manipulate people's behaviors through shame and guilt and all that stuff. Take that off. Take that off and put on a new self that stays calm, speaks truth, forgives, uses positive words to encourage doing better. Do you see how healthy the Apostle Paul's guidelines and instructions are for us? Jesus is the perfect child, our brother, the perfect child who loved us enough to put our old selves on himself at the cross to bear all of our sins. And in the process, he gave us his righteousness and a new self to put on. Love your brother, trust your father. Let's close with prayer. Lord Jesus, our flesh wants all sorts of things that are not good for us or good for the world. Give us a desire to put that off. Just as you've gifted, gifted us righteousness, we ask that you also gift us people in our lives who help us progress, improve, and transform. Help us put on the new, and as your dearly loved children, help us make you proud. May it glorify your name. Amen. This message was a production of St. Marcus Lutheran Church. For similar content, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or our YouTube channel. For more information about how to support our urban gospel ministry in Milwaukee, please visit stmarcus.org.